Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 62, Cracks in the Edifice. Last episode, we saw how Romania's efforts to secure Transylvania ended in abysmal failure. Surrounded on all sides, the outmatched Romanians stood little chance against the combined might of the Central Powers. Less than four months after entering the war, Bucharest lay under German occupation, giving the Central Powers possession of five capital cities. This week, we are going to step away from the battlefields and shift our focus to the German and Austro-Hungarian home fronts. Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff had inherited an alarming situation. Decreasing food stores, mixed with skyrocketing prices and a broken rationing system, threatened to cripple domestic infrastructure. Desperate measures had to be taken, and by the end of 1916, Hindenburg noted that without proper centralization, the chances of the alliance surviving the winter were paper thin. Before we dive into the home fronts, I want to pause and give our new command duo a proper introduction. Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff are two of Germany's most famous soldiers, and their rise to power in the latter half of 1916 came when the war was entering its attrition phase. Today, the two men are best remembered for their later careers. After the war, Ludendorff became a prominent nationalist leader and early supporter of Hitler's Nazis. Hindenburg would go on to become the last president of the Weimar Republic, whose death in 1934 allowed Hitler to solidify his power. It goes without saying that Hindenburg and Ludendorff were more than just the new guys in charge, and unlike Falkenhayn, remained towering figures after hostilities ended. So who were they? Since Hindenburg was the senior man, we'll start with him. Born in the Duchy of Posen, now part of Poland, on October 2, 1847, Paul von Hindenburg came from a long line of Prussian aristocrats and religious leaders. His father had been a young lieutenant during the Napoleonic Wars, and his mother a doctor. Hindenburg was immensely proud of his heritage, and boasted he could trace his family tree all the way back to 1289, one of his distant relatives being the famous theologian Martin Luther. His lineage put Hindenburg onto the path of greatness, and he certainly did what he could to live up to the hype. As he grew, Hindenburg was the walking image of Prussian idealism. He stood an impressive six foot five, with a massive frame and striking blue eyes. As was custom for high-born sons, Hindenburg entered the army at 11 years of age. By his 18th birthday, he was steward to the widow of Frederick William IV, the deceased King of Prussia, who died in 1861. Hindenburg first saw action in the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. During the Battle of Kuningratz, Hindenburg showed his toughness when a musket ball pinged off the side of his head and knocked him unconscious. After coming to, he wrapped his own wound and continued to lead his men, capturing an Austrian artillery battery in the process. Hindenburg's heroics earned him a medal for bravery and he soon began his steady climb up the ladder. He led a guards company during the Franco-Prussian War, and fought in the residual battles near Metz and Sedan. When Bismarck proclaimed the birth of the German Empire in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, 
Hindenburg had a front-row seat, mere meters from the Iron Chancellor himself. The next 40 years of Hindenburg's life were fruitful. In 1875, he took a junior position at the General Staff and worked his way through the ranks. In 1879, he married Gertrude von Sperling, a major's daughter, an accomplished woman in her own right. Gertrude was a noted businesswoman and philanthropist, known for her quick wit and passion for the theater, music, and art. She was the total opposite of her husband, but this created an ideal relationship. After her death in 1921, Hindenburg would write that she was a loving mate who shared with me loyally and unstirringly my joys and sorrows, my cares and labors. The marriage produced three children. His two daughters would become philanthropists themselves, while his son served as a staff officer during the Great War. Hindenburg retired from the army in 1911, but like many of his colleagues, he could see that something big was forming on the horizon. He would later write, quote, It is vital for our fatherland that we should recover the power of our past achievements. If not, it means that we should renounce our position in the world and let ourselves be degraded to the role of the anvil, because we have neither the courage nor the resolution to be the hammer when the hour comes. End quote. Paul von Hindenburg would prove to be a hammer. Stepping out of retirement in 1914, he was given command of 8th Army in East Prussia. On August the 22nd, he met Erich Ludendorff, who was appointed his chief of staff. Four days later, the two men secured a crushing victory over the Russians at Tannenberg, solidifying their place as near demigods for Germany and Austria-Hungary. Hindenburg became a legend overnight, a symbol of German defiance against the Slavic hordes from the east. Subsequently, a personality cult around him emerged. Wooden statues of Hindenburg were erected in towns across East Prussia, and iron and silver nails were sold to be hammered into the statues as a form of tribute. The proceeds from the nails were then donated to the German Red Cross. Hindenburg emerged as the popular favorite, and with a name and reputation to boot, his stock grew further. But behind the scenes was Erich Ludendorff, a man who shunned the spotlight, yet matched Hindenburg's larger-than-life persona through his unwavering loyalty and sheer commitment to his craft. Erich Ludendorff was born in 1865, the son of a successful businessman. Unlike Hindenburg, Ludendorff made his own way into the army. With no aristocratic connections to speak of, Ludendorff was homeschooled by his aunt, and like his father, had a gift for mathematics. Fun fact, Ludendorff's brother would go on to become a distinguished astronomer. Ludendorff earned a reputation as a workaholic technocrat. He graduated Berlin's military academy first in his class, and soon found work at the general staff under von Schlieffen. Ludendorff was the perfect addition to Schlieffen's staff. He was put in charge of logistics, calculating the number of men, guns, trains, supplies, and time that was needed to pull off Schlieffen's master plan. He was an obsessive worker known for keeping long hours and demanding much from his staff. In 1911, he covertly visited the Russian fortresses in Poland, as well as the Belgian forts at Liege. 
A year earlier, Ludendorff had wed Margaret Schmidt, the daughter of a wealthy industrialist. The two met during a thunderstorm, when Ludendorff offered the young lady his umbrella, and the two became inseparable. They wed later that year, bringing Ludendorff four stepchildren, to whom he was fiercely devoted. At the outbreak of war, Ludendorff was given the task of securing the Belgian forts at Liege. On the night of August 7th, Ludendorff orchestrated a daring raid which brought the forts into his possession. His performance in Belgium earned him laurels from the Kaiser, who offered him a promotion to the Eastern Front. On August the 22nd, he met Hindenburg aboard a private train. The rest, as they say, is history. When they assumed command of the German army on August the 27th, 1916, the two men had developed an unshakable bond. Once described by Hindenburg as a happy marriage, Hindenburg noticed something in Ludendorff. His capacity for hard work and intellect complemented Hindenburg's style. Hindenburg later commented, quote, After I had learned the worth of General Ludendorff, my principal task was to give free scope to the intellectual powers, the superhuman capacity for hard work, and the untiring resolution of my chief of staff. End quote. With Hindenburg now chief of the general staff, Ludendorff adopted the title of Quartermaster General, giving him total authority over offensive planning, logistics, war industries, and press matters, a crushing workload which required a certain type of character. Ludendorff adhered to a rigid schedule. His typical workday began at 8 a.m. At 9, he would meet with Hindenburg, and the two would have their daily conference with the Kaiser until 1 o'clock. After lunch, he would take a brief respite, usually a stroll with Hindenburg, before returning to his desk until 8 p.m., overseeing the war effort until midnight or 1 a.m. Then he would go to bed, get up, and do it all over again. Ludendorff later recalled that his life had been, quote, a life of work for our country, the emperor and army. During the four years of war, I lived only for the war. End quote. This begs the question, what exactly did the two men bring to the table? Well, to put it simply, they offered a way out. Both were firm believers in a war of annihilation, and that Germany still possessed enough strength to deliver a knockout blow. They had watched in disbelief as Falkenhayn failed time and time again to break the French at Verdun, codifying their belief that brute force was Germany's best hope. The two men possessed the right amount of ruthlessness. Neither gave a fig about politics, and the world was one of Spartan simplicity. They knew no uncertainty, and their confidence in each other rested upon a secure foundation of knowledge and personal quality. To Hindenburg and Ludendorff, their task was simple. Destroy the Entente and secure victory. For the new chiefs, 1916 was a lost cause. Winter was fast approaching, and with no time to organize a counteroffensive, Hindenburg and Ludendorff looked to 1917. To ensure Germany was prepared for the new year, changes at all levels of military and government had to take place. Above all else, what Germany needed was a period of calm, a chance to take stock of the situation 
and address the plethora of issues affecting the home fronts. At the end of the year, Ludendorff summarized the situation by writing, quote, We could not hope for the collapse of any of the Entente powers. In a drawn-out war, the possibility of our defeat could not be discounted. This was because the basis for us to sustain a war of exhaustion was very unfavorable. The home front had been hit hard. End quote. And hit hard it had been. By late 1916, the home fronts of Germany and Austria-Hungary were not living up to the efforts being made in the field. Monthly police reports indicated a growing crisis in civilian morale. Berlin, Vienna, and Budapest were gripped with food shortages, out-of-controlled inflation, and social unrest. In the words of historian William Philpott, Germans were growing tired of war and indifferent to warriors. News from the front rarely brought celebration, and new recruits mustered to the front were no longer cheered on their way. In beer halls and bread queues, people were talking about peace instead of victory. Shortages from the Allied blockade meant families were now going to bed on empty stomachs, and as the price of commodities rose, working wages were frozen. The pre-war divides were being accentuated by the war, and Hindenburg was greatly concerned that Germany was a powder keg waiting to blow. In an attempt to reignite the spirit of 1914, Germany borrowed a page from the Allied playbook. In response to Malins's film, The Battle of the Somme, the German film board produced their own film on the battle, entitled With Our Heroes on the Somme, released in early 1917. Unlike Malins's intimate and harrowing depictions of battle, Our Heroes on the Somme was panned by German critics. Most of the action sequences were filmed far away from the front, or in training depots inside Germany. To put it bluntly, people were fed up. Their governments had promised their sacrifices would be rewarded, and that victory would be swift. To be clear, the quick and easy victory is probably the oldest trick in the book. Few governments have ever gone to war on the premise that it would be long and brutal. But while France, Britain, and to a much lesser extent Russia, made efforts to put their economies onto a war footing, the Germans and Habsburgs had dug in their heels. There was no equivalent to the Ministry of Munitions, and existing bureaucracies, such as the War Materials Office under Walter Rathenau, possessed limited powers. The ultra-conservative Prussians spurred the idea of centralization, choosing to believe that the next offensive would be successful. By mid-1916, even the staunchest pro-war advocate could not deny things had taken a turn for the worst. Harvest levels that year were at an all-time low. Potato, wheat, and corn had dropped 50%, thanks to a stretch of poor weather and dearth of fertilizers. Although the conquest of Romania brought in precious commodities like grain, oil, and livestock, it was a band-aid solution to a much larger problem. The public weren't stupid. They knew most of the booty would be used to feed the army, and not them. Food had become so scarce that by mid-1916, soldiers at the front were the ones sending food parcels back home, a complete 180 from what was the norm two years earlier. 
The German and Habsburg governments had tried a couple of things to address the growing food shortage. Rationing had been introduced in 1915, but with limited results. The issued ration cards entitled folks to a bit of meat and starch, but did not reflect the changes in price. Price ceilings were implemented, but this did not stop excessive speculation. In Vienna, food prices had shot up 600%, and leather speculators reaped gains of 200% in a single year. In October 1916, women stormed government offices in Linz to protest food shortages and out-of-control prices. Similar examples of unrest broke out in May and September. Women and children smashed windows and pillaged shops in protest. Viennese police used fire hoses to disperse the angry crowds of mothers protesting the lack of food. In Berlin, the first public soup kitchen opened in July 1916. By 1917, 77 more were added, with each one serving a cruel mix of Ertzatz foods, which in the words of one woman, was not fit for consumption. To alleviate hunger, Ertzatz foods flooded the marketplace. Ersatz foods were perhaps the most despised of all. Put simply, Ersatz foods were consumables made from artificial or substitute products. In German, the word means to mix, or substitute, but that is putting it lightly. To most Germans, the word Ersatz meant one thing. Crap. Warbread, a rotten mixture of barley, corn, rye, and potato meal, made its first appearance in late 1915. Coffee, in quotation marks, was little more than caramel-flavored raw sugar and beet flour. Tea consisted of roasted barley, grasses, and wildflowers. Then there was the infamous war sausage, which one woman equated to a mouthful of blood and sawdust. Interestingly enough, the disgust at Ertzatz products forced people to get creative. A butcher in Cologne, for example, combined soya, flour, corn, barley, and ground rice, creating the first vegetarian hot dog. So there's a little bit of trivia for you. Given that 1916 began with such high hopes, it is not surprising people reacted so strongly. Riots, protests, and labor strikes had become near-weekly occurrences. In Berlin, Vienna, and Budapest, food queues had become the norm. Police reports suggest that a typical day in late 1916, some 250,000 shoppers formed 783 lines outside Vienna's food markets and shops. With this many hungry people all vying for the same thing, tempers would flare. One woman would find herself front row center in a riot, which broke out in October. Anna Eisenmenger, a Vienna housewife, recounts her woes at the seemingly endless food lines, which became an all-too-familiar experience for wartime women. In her memoir, Diary of an Austrian Middle-Class Woman, Eisenmenger recalls the anxieties of spending hours in a food queue. Eisenmenger arrived at a ration station at 7 a.m. on a cold October morning and was greeted with chaos. Quote, No sooner had I reached the neighborhood of the big market hall that I was instructed by the police to take a certain direction. 
Although the people were standing six in a row and six persons at a time were being admitted, I was obliged to make a halt some minutes' walk from the gate of the hall. I estimated the crowd waiting here for a meager midday meal at 2,000 at least. Hundreds of women had spent the night here in order to be among the first and make sure of getting their bit of meat. Many had brought with them improvised seats, a little box or a bucket turned upside down. No one seemed to mind the rain, although many were already wet through. End quote. Once the sale began, things took a turn for the worst. The people near the front got the best pieces, and those standing in the back would try to barter. The sale was slow and cumbersome, often taking hours. Those further down the line would see the size and quality of the ration begin to decline, and then all hell would break loose. Eisenmenger then recounts what happened next. Quote, the crowd became very uneasy and impatient, and before the police on guard could prevent it, those standing in front organized an attack on the hall, which the salesmen inside were powerless to repel. Everyone seized whatever they could get their hands on, and in a few moments, the edibles had vanished, as though devoured by a hungry swarm of locusts. End quote. Eisenmenger's testimony shows us how poorly prepared the central powers were for a prolonged conflict. Ration cards were as useless as the paper they printed on. Actually, no, that's not true. Many people chose to burn their ration cards for fuel and heat. By early 1917, shortages of fuel plagued civilian transport and home and school heating. Civilians could no longer travel by train, and streetcar service in Berlin was banned after 9 p.m., Street lighting had all but vanished, and by the winter of 1916, households were allowed to heat one room only, resulting in frozen water pipes, and then you know what happens next, kaboom. Civilians were willing to put up with a lot. They were willing to work long hours and to give up daily luxuries. Their sons, husbands, and brothers were fighting a war, and they knew they needed all the support they could get. But with no food in their bellies, people became desperate. It was clear their governments did not plan to address their concerns. The war had nearly bankrupted the dual monarchy. War expenditures had reached 21 billion kronen, twice the amount paid by Germany, yet she had little to show for it. War bonds were folded into the regular budget, and the central bank floated six separate war loans by 1916. The coffers were empty. Gold and silver currency had disappeared, replaced by paper money and iron pennies. The krone fell 45% on the international exchange, and the national debt rose to 83 billion kronen, floated mostly by German bank loans. The dual monarchy made no contingency plans in case the war stretched beyond its estimated time. They began the war well-stocked and supplied, but it spent lavishly, and hurled their armies at the enemy with reckless ambition. Vienna's mismanagement drew the ire of Budapest. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Istvan Tissa, responded by freezing further grain shipments to the Austrian capital. By 1916, food from the Hungarian breadbasket constituted just 2% of all Austria's food imports. 
This break in the otherwise amicable relationship between the two halves of the empire should not be taken out of context. While it led some to accuse the Hungarians of disloyalty, the Austrians understood it was not born from ill intent. Although it was a talking point in the elite circles, the Hungarians were not purposefully starving the Austrians. The war in Galicia, Poland, and Bukovina had stripped Hungary of its most fertile land, and with no fertilizer, thanks to the naval embargo, the Hungarian farmers could do nothing. Cereal crops fell from 146 to 78 million quintals between 1914 and 1916. Farmers had no feed for their livestock, forcing them to slaughter the animals and absorb the loss. In short, the Hungarians barely had enough food for themselves, let alone enough overstock to send to Austria. In response, the Austrian provinces and townships resorted to isolation. Trade barriers were raised, creating self-contained economic zones. People had lost all faith in the administration, and increasingly turned to each other for help. October and November 1916 were difficult months for Austria-Hungary. On October 21st, the Austrian Prime Minister, Karl von Sturg, was shot dead while lunching in a Viennese hotel. Sturg's assassin was Friedrich Alder, the son of the founder of the Austrian Social Democratic Party. Alder justified his killing as an act against the war, and inept leadership of the Austrian government. Alder's trial was widely publicized, and became the talk of Vienna for the next month. Public opinion eventually swayed in his favor, and Alder narrowly avoided the death penalty. Alder received life in prison, but was later given a royal pardon by the new Emperor Charles. Speaking of the new emperor, exactly one month after Sturg's assassination, Austria-Hungary finally received the news everyone knew was coming. On the night of November the 21st, the aging emperor Franz Joseph passed away in his sleep. The old man had spent his final days stricken with pneumonia, which he had caught during an evening walk one week earlier. Franz Joseph was 86 years of age, and had spent an impressive 68 years on the Habsburg throne. To this day, Joseph is the third longest reigning monarch in European history behind only Louis XIV of France and Johann II of Lechenstein. No one was surprised by the news, but given the fragile state of the home front, Joseph's death was particularly devastating. Having assumed the throne in 1848, Joseph's reign stretched across generations, and few Habsburg subjects could remember any other ruler. To both his critics and supporters, Joseph was the reason the empire held together, and most had remained loyal to his person, if not his empire. Those bonds of habit and affection were now at risk, and his successor, Emperor Charles, would face an uphill battle just to keep the monarchy together. For the dual monarchy, it was no longer about victory, but survival at all costs. From their time on the Eastern Front, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were familiar with the difficulties facing the dual monarchy. So far, German money and foodstuffs kept the Habsburgs running on fumes, but Berlin had serious doubts about whether this could be sustained into 1917. By 1916, the German people were already reduced to a meager and monotonous diet of black bread, 
fatless sausage, and three pounds of potatoes per week. By the end of the year, potatoes would all but vanish, replaced by turnips. In the words of historian Olger Herwig, a leading expert on the central powers in the First World War, Germany had become a beleaguered fortress. Not only had her trade with Norway and Sweden suffered under the British blockade, her trade agreement with Holland had disintegrated. Under pressure from London, the Dutch had agreed to cut German exports by 50%. By 1916, Germany's food imports were at 21.8 million tons, half the tonnage recorded in 1913. By 1917, this number would drop again to a meager 14.9 million tons. The German people had become desperate, but some had found clever ways to skirt the authorities. One example comes from Princess Evelyn Blücher, an English woman who married into Prussian nobility. At a train station in Breslau, Blücher witnessed a bizarre scene. In her diary, she describes a well-dressed, dignified-looking lady who was refusing to have her luggage weighed by the station staff. Her exchange caught the attention of the station manager, who then proceeded to open her bag. To his surprise, the bag contained a butchered pig. Head, tail, the whole damn thing. The woman was attempting to smuggle the pig back into the city, where it could be sold on the burgeoning black market. Fortunately, the station manager had a sense of humor. He could have arrested the woman, but felt the embarrassment of a whole pig being lifted from her bag was punishment enough. It was clear that things could not remain the way they were. If Hindenburg and Ludendorff were to see Germany survive into 1917, there had to be a clamp down at home. The desperate situation called for centralization on a mass scale. Private enterprises and industry had to be streamlined to fit the demands of war. On August the 31st, 1916, Hindenburg brought forth a plan that would increase military authority over the civilian sector. The needs of the German armed forces had to be supplied at any cost, he noted, and every man and woman fit to work had to place themselves at the disposal of the state. On December 2nd, 1916, the Reichstag passed the Patriotic Auxiliary Service Law, PASL for short, which formed the basis of what would become the infamous Hindenburg Program. Purposely modeled after Lloyd George's Ministry of Munitions, the Hindenburg Program put the German and Austro-Hungarian economies onto a war footing. Working hours increased, and wages were once again frozen. It called for the compulsory employment of all able-bodied males, between the ages of 17 and 60, not serving in the armed forces or other war-related work. Thousands of laborers from German-occupied territories were brought in to address labor shortages. 20,000 Belgian and French workers were put to work in German factories, Hungarian weaving mills, and Bohemian glass-blowing plants. At heart, the Hindenburg program was designed to increase industrial output. As Hindenburg himself stated, quote, Men, as well as horses, must be replaced more and more by machines. End quote. Although it bore Hindenburg's name, the logistical details were handled by Ludendorff. By default, 
The program gave the two men near dictatorial powers over the army and civilian sectors. It should be noted, however, that the bill was not issued by imperial decree. Hindenburg and Ludendorff did not care for politics, but they knew that if the program stood any hope of success, working class and union support was essential. The final bill was the result of a compromise between left and right. Numerous amendments were made, which ensured union and workers' rights were guaranteed. One such compromise was on whether the law should apply to women. Hindenburg was adamant that women should be conscripted into the labor force, but union leaders and industrialists were fiercely opposed. Since women could not be threatened with military service, there were fears that women would demand higher wages and formulate strikes. In the end, women would be exempt from compulsory employment, soon followed by pastors, civil servants, students, farmers, and health technicians. A key distinction needs to be drawn here. Full-scale home front mobilization, which a French reporter likened to the levee en masse, was Germany's last resort. The Hindenburg program was tacit admittance that Germany had not done enough to prepare for a prolonged struggle. Upon his dismissal, Falkenhayn lamented that Germany was now, quote, engaged in a struggle in which the very existence of our nation, and not only military glory or the conquest of territory, was at stake, end quote. This change in stratagem can be credited to the effectiveness of the Allied offensive. According to French historian René Carey, 1916 was a turning point in which the deeper forces broke through. The bloodlettings at Verdun, the Somme, and the Brusilov Offensive expended both lives and wealth at such a rate as to push an already relentless war to a whole new level of destruction in national expenditure. The great naval duel at Jutland had failed to weaken the Allied blockade, and as a result, Military rhetoric had given way to humble reality. By the end of 1916, German losses on the Western Front were over 750,000 men for the year, often considered by many historians to be some of the best troops Germany had to offer. The Hindenburg program was designed to marshal Germany's resources for total war, but its success would be mixed at best. In the meantime, Hindenburg and Ludendorff focused on escorting a wounded Germany into winter, and the Allies were not about to let them go peacefully. Next week, we'll return to the Somme battlefield. Rawlinson had spied an opportunity to crack the German positions at the villages of Flair Corselet, allowing British cavalry to strike towards Bapaume. The Battle of Flair Corselet, which began on September 15, 1916, marks a turning point in the history of warfare. It was on this day that the tank made its first appearance on the battlefield. Widely touted as a miracle weapon, the lumbering land battleships proved a disappointing liability. Although the British would emerge victorious, Haig's deployment of the tank remains controversial, with his critics arguing he used tanks before they were available in large enough numbers thus revealing the secret and betraying their purpose. Such views do not hold up to close scrutiny, and I hope you join me again next episode as we dive headfirst into this fascinating debate. Before we end things for this week, I would like to send a big thank you to our recent donors. 
Rafael Fernandez, John Ponis, Frederick Dugard, and Wesley Verzevelt. Thank you very much for your kind contributions. Your donations help keep this show running, and I can't thank you enough. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 62 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.